Welcome to this latest in the database and ontology series of the Ontolog Community of Practice. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Eliza Kendall. Eliza is the founder of Sandpiper Software, which develops software and solutions to support business semantics, interoperability, machine interpretable policy representation, and policy-based applications. She has formal training in situation semantics, coupled with extensive systems integration experience, and is an active participant in the Semantic Web Best Practices and Deployment effort of the W3C, and a key contributor to the standards, such as Object Management Group's Ontology Definition Metamodel, ODM. And this is the subject of her talk today. So without further ado, I'll hand over to, to you now. Thanks very much, Matthew. I, I think actually I've met some of the folks on the call um, on a number of occasions previously, and then a number of you are new to me. So um, hopefully um, the information will be new to you and fairly useful. Um, as Matthew mentioned, I'm actually one of the co-editors of the ontology definition metamodel um, standard that was recently adopted by the uh, Object Management Group. Um, the group of us that participated in that effort, uh, which I'm going to actually walk through some of today, um, included all kinds of folks from the RDS and OWL communities, people who had participated in WebOnt um, and in the definition of the OWL language, including um, Evan Wallace from NIST, Chris Welty, um, Gotong Jie from uh, IBM, uh, and Dan Chang early on from IBM, some folks from the University of Queensland and what was formerly DSTC, uh, including Kerry Raymond and Bob Colomb. Um, we had assistance from HP Labs from some of the RDF community folks there, including Dave Reynolds and Jeremy Carroll, who were both extremely helpful. Um, Pat Hayes helped tremendously both with um, educating me on RDF semantics and also with the common logic components of the model. Chris Menzels reviewed it. So a number of folks from the knowledge representation community have participated in developing the standard in one way or another. On the OMG side, from a UML perspective, we also had assistance from uh, a number of people who are fairly well known in the metamodeling community, Dave Frankel and um, Pete Rivet most notably, but um, the specification has been reviewed extensively inside of the OMG as well. Um, the effort to develop it was initiated, I believe, in early 2003, and I didn't participate in the first couple of meetings, but um, several of us came together starting in the summer of that year to put together ideas for the specification. And a couple of things just to help with those of you who are new to it. First, it is freely and publicly available now on the OMG website. And the link will be embedded in my presentation. I'll point it out again when we get there. But in fact, um, it's pretty big. Just to be um, putting it mildly, it's, it's over 300 pages. And so for those of you who are newer to ontology and, and 
especially to um, trying to represent these kinds of things in UML. We have a chapter in the beginning of the document that might be very useful to some of you, and that is our Chapter 7, which we put together as we were doing some of the original background work for developing the meta models. Um, and it's a section that talks about usage scenarios and goals for the document and for the specification and what some of our vision was in developing it. And I'd encourage anybody who's taking a look at this for the time and is really interested in, in using the specification and understanding the thinking that was behind the work uh, to take a glance through that Chapter 7. It's not very long. It's actually really helpful in understanding where we were coming from and hopefully um, will be useful to you as you start to work through the document. Um, so with that, Peter, if you would start with my agenda slide, which I think is the second slide into the presentation. So just to walk through what I was planning to share today, um, for those of you who come from the knowledge representation community and aren't as familiar with some of the OMG, UML, and Meta Object Facility or MOF um, terminology, I'll give a brief overview of the sort of model-driven architecture viewpoint and what that brings to the table. Um, talk about how MDA and knowledge representation are somewhat complementary. Um, and then walk right into the meta model. So describing what the ODM actually is and then trying to walk through some of the diagrams that represent the RDF and OWL meta model. A little bit of highlights there. Some highlights of the common logic meta model, which I don't necessarily give in other talks, um, especially at the OMG community, but having said that, I understand that there are, are folks in this community who are interested in that aspect. So um, I will spend a little bit of time walking through the common logic meta model. Um, I'm also going to describe uh, a little bit about the profile for RDF and OWL, which allows users to take an existing UML tool and actually use that tool for visualizing RDF and OWL um, and for creating ontologies in the UML framework. Um, then I'll give a little bit of an overview of how the ODM fits in with other OMG standards, other W3C standards, um, what the relationship between the ODM and some of the existing and emerging metadata standards is. And then at the very end I have uh, a smattering of things describing some applications that we've worked on um, and a little bit of futures on where this can go. So hopefully that will be useful to all of you and I'll look forward to questions. Um, it seems like in this forum it might be better if we hold questions for the end. Um, but if you have something urgent, please feel free to ping Peter and raise your hand and chat in. So with that, I'm going to move to slide three, which is an overview of uh, MDA, or model-driven architecture. And the, the actual model-driven architecture is really more of a methodology than it is a particular standard. And it actually consists of a whole group of existing standards and best practices 
um, across a number of disciplines within the ONG community, the basic three specifications that make up the um, MDA uh, include the UML or Unified Modeling Language, the Meta Object Facility or MOF, and the Common Warehouse Meta Model, um, which covers a range of things, including relational uh, modeling as well as uh, XML schema modeling and other kinds of things, uh, OLAP databases, et cetera. Um, those three specifications are really the core of MDA. Beyond that, there are a number of other associated specifications that fall under the, um, the MDA umbrella. But the thing to note here is that um, it's not any one specification. It's actually a discipline, and there's really a great introduction to MDA on the OMG website. So for those of you who are interested, if you go to uh, omg.org um, and click on their MDA um, little diagram, just like the one on my slide three, uh, that will take you right to the MDA section of their website. And there is uh, an introductory paper there that is actually quite good um, that a number of folks contributed to. Um, to give you an idea of what we're using in the ODM from MDA, the, the piece, which is kind of a, a subset, maybe a third of MDA, um, is about how MDA allows you to manage metadata. And so if you move to slide four, I just want to give you a feeling for what that means. Um, MOF, or the Meta Object Facility, is actually a subset of UML in some ways. Um, and it allows you to uh, model the abstract syntax of um, any kind of a language. That's really the primary use of it in ODM, actually, is for modeling the abstract syntax of the knowledge representation formalisms that we want to be able to represent and interoperate with. So um, the idea is that you describe a meta model of some language in, in MOF. You can describe a second meta model um, of another language, of a target language, using MOF, and then create a transformation model between the two so that um, you can then automatically transform instances of those metamodels from one to another. Um, and there are a series of specifications, as I mentioned, around the ability to do this. One of them, which we also leverage in the ODM, is called the MOF Query View Transformation Specification, or QVT. Um, that's a difficult specification to understand. Um, if you don't need to, I don't recommend going there from the start. I'd, I'd suggest that you wait until you have a little more familiarity with MOF and some of the other things before you jump into QBT. But QBT is a transformation language. It allows you to preserve in those transformations what is lost when you move from one language to another, which for us is extremely important in the knowledge representation community. So. And definitely, as many of you know, DL is going to be a subset of, of first-order logic in many ways. And so uh, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping. And therefore, when you move from a description logics arena or attempt to move from description logics to first-order, 
if you wanted to go back the other way, there's certainly loss in your transformations. QVT provides facilities for keeping track of what is lost and potentially restoring it if you're trying to do forward and reverse engineering. Um, one thing that I refused to commit to when we were starting out on the ODM work, and I stand by that today, is that I didn't want to support round-trip engineering because you might be able to get logical equivalence between two ontologies, but I wasn't willing to commit to round-trip by any stretch of the imagination. What QVT permits is for you to preserve that lost information so that theoretically you could do forward and reverse engineering and get a logically equivalent model, even if it's not identical to where you started. Um, I have yet to be able to test this. The QVT tools are somewhat um, early in their development stages, as QVT was a specification that was developed in parallel with the ODM. So the QVT mappings that are contained in the ODM specification are early mappings, is um, probably a good way of putting it. And although other people tested them for us, we were not able to do that ourselves. So I would just uh, suggest um, a little bit of caution if you were hoping for immediate uh, and wonderful transformations that were automated amongst the metamodels in the document. Um, we hope to get there soon, but I think stay tuned is the right uh, way to look at that. Um, so moving to slide five, why do you care about MOF and MDA? From a knowledge representation perspective, most of the um, enterprise information integration solutions available today really rely on very strict adherence to your agreements, um, XML schemas, or what have you, in order to map from one um, model to another. And those, as many of you know, are very difficult to build and very difficult to get consensus on. Um, modifying those agreements is very expensive. And most of the alignment between models, even using sophisticated MOF tools, is done by people today. So what knowledge representation brings to the table um, is the support for formal semantics that can actually assist tremendously in automating those transformations. <clears throat> Having said that, the knowledge representation piece, uh, so moving to slide five, or six rather, the, the knowledge representation piece gives you all of the reasoning support, but the MOF technologies and tools give you all of the mechanics and all the underlying syntactic support for managing models, for managing Java objects, CORBA objects, um, source code, XML, whatever it is that you happen to be wanting to um, bring together. The MOF technology streamlines all of the mechanics for moving the bits and bytes across pipes. What the MOF pieces don't have are reasoning about resources, which is, again, what the knowledge representation piece brings to the table. So those of us who were working on the ODM believe that this marriage could be very successful in terms of bringing complementary technologies together that would actually bring us much closer to the MDA vision of executable models. 
Um, so that's what this whole process is about, to bring um, reasoning about resources, semantic alignment, consistency checking, model validation, all of those capabilities that the knowledge representation and reasoning community bring to the table, together with all of the mechanics that you get from this large body of uh, knowledge available in the, in the UML, MOS, and MDA community, bring those two things together to actually enable the vision that people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, slide seven. So just to provide a little bit of level setting for everyone, um, a lot of people that I know have their own definitions of what an ontology is. And after hearing thousands of different definitions, all of which were very similar but not necessarily alike, um, we came up with our own slide just to do a little bit of level setting based on a discussion that took place at AAAI in 1999 on an ontologies panel. Um, a number of my friends participated in that, and I've seen other renditions of this same um, sort of definition. So just so that we're all on the same page, I believe that people describe things ranging from um, an index or category of terms to a fairly formal, uh, logical model and describe anything in that range as an ontology. And so what we tried to do with the ODM was start with that red squiggle in the middle beyond an informal um, subsumption hierarchy and move to the right. So our goal was to support representation of anything that was at least a formal hierarchy or richer um, in the ODM. Um, but we did not intend to go beyond uh, first order. So the ODM was not explicitly designed to support second order or modal logic or anything like that, although I understand that there are some extensions that one can um, provide to common logic to facilitate that. And we did not do anything in the meta model to preclude implementing those. Um, so slide eight, I, I, another perspective on um, the overview of what we were trying to accomplish here. Um, really, we wanted to cover sort of the lion's share of things that we thought people wanted to be able to represent or interoperate with using knowledge representation and MDA technologies together. So ranging from XML and database schemas to um, taking a, a software model and being able to extract the vocabulary from that to um, a full, at least first order, knowledge representation framework. Slide nine. Um, so in order to do that, we felt that limiting ourselves to RDF and OWL did not necessarily serve the community well. And as I mentioned um, when we started out, the section seven of the document provides some usage scenarios and goals for the development which will give you a little better perspective on why we decided to broaden the scope of the document and actually include topic maps and common logic in, a in addition to RDF and OWL. Um, the document itself includes five uh, platform, what, what are called platform independent meta models, four of which are normative. The normative meta models include a meta model for RDF, 
a metal model for OWL, which, as you can see from the diagram, depends on the RDF meta model, um, just as the languages are interdependent. Um, a meta model for common logic and a meta model for topic maps. Um, although a number of folks believe that the OMG is primarily US focused, in fact, we have a fairly large European community as well um, where topic maps is a more active standard than it is in the US today. And so in order to serve the um, community best that is participating in OMG activities, we felt that it was important to include that as well. So the specification includes those four metamodels, a non-normative kind of informative DL metamodel at the back of the document in an appendix, which we provide primarily for educational purposes for people who are new to description logics and knowledge representation. Um, it also includes UML profiles for RDF and OWL and topic maps. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the profile allows you to, in a systematic way, represent notions in a particular language in a UML tool. Um, and we do that so that you can uh, support code generation, meaning RDF or OWL generation, for example, out of the tool based on using standard notation for doing so. And so the, no the visual notation is provided in the profile, whereas the meta model represents the abstract syntax of the language and allows us to do transformations between models under the covers. So again, the, the meta model piece is actually for interchange purposes. The profile piece is for uh, visualization and a, as a graphical notation for actually developing ontologies. So hopefully that will help clarify what the different pieces of the specification are about. Um, so let's jump in to slide 10, which is um, the RDF meta model. And just as an overview of RDF, there are actually three packages in the RDF meta model. Um, it took us as a team probably two years to come to the realization and arrive at a consensus as to what needed to be in those separate packages, um, which may be surprising to some folks. But it was a tremendous effort to decide what was base RDF versus what was uh, needed in order to hook our ontologies into the web. Because RDF depends on a number of notions that are XML notions that are not actually part of the RDF specification. And there's also overlap between what we call RDF base and what is identified in the RDF specification as actually being RDF schema notions. Um, it was really hard to tease those two apart. And we had a lot of help from RDF folks, as I mentioned earlier. We had a lot of help from Pat Hayes to try and figure out what the real distinctions were and how to best represent it in our meta models so that the interchange was uh, successful. So what we did was we kind of aligned along the RDF um, concepts document as being what was essential to the language or, or our base package. 
um, using RDFS package to add the vocabulary related to RDF schema uh, and a few additional features. And then the RDF web piece actually fits the whole model to the web, including notions like namespace definitions, um, base namespaces, documents, that sort of thing. That's in our RDF web package. So people who don't need that, who use an N3 notation or something else, um, may only need a, a portion of the RDF web package um, and don't need to depend on it entirely, whereas folks using uh, RDF XML serialization for their vocabularies might need all three packages. So um, the first um, sort of base diagram in the RDF package that I'd like us to look at briefly is the statements diagram that is on slide 11. Um, and you'll see that there are there is this crossover between RDF and RDFS in terms of the naming of the namespaces in RDF that we were um, we needed to actually merge into the same package in order to make things flow properly. So, for example, RDFS resource um, is actually defined in RDF schema in the documents, but we needed that as part of our base package in order to ground the rest of the model. So what you see is the notion of a statement, um, which consists of a subject, uh, predicate, and object, all of which are resources. Um, you see the notion of a graph, and we actually support named graphs here. While they are not in the base RDF language, they become fairly mainstream with Sparkle and other things, and so we felt that it was important to include that. Um, the notion of whether or not something is a blank node, a reference node, or literal, uh, we needed to tease out for downstream work. Um, and you'll see that we also have a representation which was somewhat controversial during the development process and which we still go around on periodically in our discussions uh, for reification. Um, there, that description was something that uh, we spent a lot of time on and had folks like um, Pat Hayes arguing with the Dave Reynolds and Jeremy Carroll about over the phone, which was actually delightful from my perspective. But, um, but we think we have a reasonable representation of that as well. And so all of that is in this base package. There's also a literal diagram that um, you can look at in the reference specification. Um, the RDF schema package, as you might expect, so slide 12, um, reflects classes, properties, um, and some other utilities for representing collections. So um, the basic diagrams of that package include the classes and utilities diagram, um, which is shown on slide 12, the properties diagram, which is shown on slide 13, including things like not only domain and range, but um, property inheritance. Um, and then the collections diagram, which, again, you can take a look at in the specification if that's of interest to you. Finally, on the RDF web package, there is one diagram, and that's given on slide 14. And that particular diagram helps us fit the rest of the meta model to the web. And we needed that specifically for uh, generating RDF out of UML tools. So to be able to say this particular vocabulary is part of 
document X, um, it's grounded with the following namespaces, um, it describes certain local names. Uh, connecting all of that together um, is what the RDF web package is all about. So those are things that are not explicitly defined in the RDF language, but that we needed in order to be able to generate RDF XML or even N3 in some cases um, out of UML tools. And that, uh, in a nutshell, is the RDF meta model. And again, the meta model is designed to support um, interoperability under the covers, not necessarily as a graphical notation for developing ontologies using UML. And we'll look at a couple of examples of how to do that uh, in a moment. So moving to slide 15, um, the meta model for OWL, as you can see in this picture uh, depends on the meta model for RDF. And we actually divided the OWL meta model into three packages as well, although um, for those of you not familiar with the languages, it may be a little bit harder to tease that out. The, the actual abstract syntax elements of the model are all in the base package. So uh, constraints that were common to OWL, DL, and OWL are all represented in the OWL base package. And then the OWL, DL, and OWL sub-packages provide constraints that are specific to the dialects. Um, we also had some issues that we ran into when we were attempting to do this in developing the ODM related to multiple inheritance. So MOF and UML claim to support multiple inheritance, but there is an odd feature of MOF called MOF reflection that allows you to uh, take, it's an API that allows you to take um, a given class and query about who its parents are or an individual and ask who, um, who its types are. And as it turns out, MOF reflection is single valued. So it, doesn't actually support multiple inheritance, even though the language claims to. Um, and this is an anomaly in MOF. It's not true of UML, but for metamodeling purposes, you have to stay within MOF. So we raised a red flag in the OMG and said, this has to be fixed. And there is now uh, an RFP out for what they're calling semantic MOF that fixes this and a couple of other features for um, representation of not KR languages, and actually it's required for other domain-specific language development as well. Um, hopefully that will be resolved within the next year. But in the meantime, in an appendix of the specification, we show you what some workarounds are until those changes are actually implemented in the tools for UML. So um, again, the packages that are considered normative in the meta model don't include those workarounds so that we can just lock them off as soon as the standard is fixed. Um, going to slide 16, the OWL base package includes the things that you would expect it to include with regard to some of the sort of annotation properties like um, prior version and incompatible with or import statements. It's the container essentially for a given OWL ontology. And we also link it back to um, RDF and to essentially to the RDF web package mm -hmm. by saying 
that AL graphs are a subset of um, RDF graphs and AL state, valid AL statements are a subset of valid RDF statements. And so those two hooks take us back up to RDF and allow us to leverage uh, some of the other features that are included in the RDF web package in particular. So slide 17 um, is really, slide 17 and 18 really cover um, the notions that we would describe as our OWL classes and OWL restrictions. So um, on slide 17, you'll see that we actually follow um, notions from the OWL abstract syntax fairly closely by creating uh, subclasses of OWL class for complements, uh, for enumerated classes, intersections, and unions, and also for restrictions. Um, and on slide 18, which is a little bit hard to read, but hopefully if you blow it up it won't be a problem, um, is where we represent the various restrictions, either value or number restrictions from the OWL language. Um, and all of those, again, are required for um, proper interoperability among models under the covers. Um, so then the OWL properties diagram, which is on slide 19, um, shows how we've represented OWL properties. Um, and here again, we tried to follow the abstract syntax of the language as closely as we could. What you'll see is that um, here, functional property, data type property, and object property are subclasses of a an intermediate class we introduced, which is for general properties that have various constraints against them. This out allowed us to roll certain things up. This is one area where the um, MOF reflection problem caused us to do something different in the um, appendix in order to work around this until the um, changes to MOF reflection are reflected in tools. And then, um, and, and that's really what I wanted to cover in terms of the OWL meta model, RDF and OWL meta models. Um, so I did hear someone chime in wanting to say something, and so um, if I can pause right now if there was a question. I have a question if no one else does, uh, Elisa, but... Um, can can you speak up a little bit, Matthew? Sorry. This is Matthew. I have a question, if uh, if no one else does, but uh, let's check that there was no one else first. Okay. Uh, if anyone uh, wants to ask a question, please press 1-1 one, one on your keypad so that at least we uh, get to know who is on on deck to ask a question. To ask a question. No, I don't see anyone yet. Okay, so... So, uh, Matthew, please I'll go, go ahead. I'll but go you're ahead, very soft, yeah. so you, you need yeah, to... Sorry, uh, slide 17. Yes. Um, uh, you show enumerated class having um, uh, one or more individuals as uh, members, I guess. Yes. Is that right? Um, yes. Does that mean that enumerated classes can't have other classes, can't be enumerations of other classes? Um, 
I think that you can do that, and I am not sure whether or not that's a restriction um, between LDL and LFOL or whether LDL um, supports that. I'd have to look back at the document, but I, but I have the sense that that's okay in LFOL and not necessarily in LDL. Yes, that's what that's I think what I would have expected. So whilst an individual might be ontologically a class, it wouldn't be an owl class. If it was right, but if owl. you're working an owl full, um, then we don't preclude you from yeah. okay, doing something else that there. Okay, just as it was passing by, and it, it, didn't, it, it seemed to be the base package, so I was expecting it to be good for everything. It just, yeah, it, and, just and, and that's a good point. Mind. And in fact, um, I'll take a note to go back and and just review to make sure that we haven't missed something there. Okay. That that was it. Okay. Okay, so, we have another uh, hang on. We have another question from Mustafa Jara from Belgium. Um uh, Mustafa if you would unmute your phone with a star three and ask your question. That would be nice. Uh, hello, do you hear me now? Yes. Ah, hi. Excuse me. Well, actually, I have just a quick question because is this, are we talking OWL 1 or OWL 1.1? So this is the first part of my question. And the second part is why we need to model OWL, why we don't go directly to something called DIG, which is uh, the description logic um, interface uh, for uh, reasoning. Okay, so both are good questions. Um, first, um, with regard to OWL 1.0 versus OWL 1.1, um, I've been sitting in on some of the OWL-led workshops. Deb McGinnis, who is our chief scientist uh, on the side, um, obviously is participating in a lot of that work. Um, we originally decided to represent strictly OWL 1.0 because L1.1 is still in the formation stages. And although certain things like data types, there's a lot of consensus around that needs to be in L1.1, um, there are other issues that are a little bit more controversial. And at the last workshop I attended, which was at ISWIC in November, um, some people, and I won't name names, but some people in the OWL community wanted to completely change the abstract syntax altogether and do something different, which uh, would completely um, change all of our meta models in the ODM spec. And so we decided to pause and to represent OWL 1.0 because that's already out there. There's already tooling to support that, and we were going to um, – promote or try to encourage backwards compatibility from an abstract syntax perspective to the extent possible with L1.1. But based on what I heard in the OWL-ed workshop, I would say L1.1 is still at least a year and a half away, and mm -hmm. we wanted to be current and get our specification out so people could use it and then have a follow-up RFP to revise it once L1.1 is stabilized. So that was kind of the premise going in on that piece of it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, with respect to the DIG interface, that is something that we've talked about modeling as um, 
either an appendix or an extension to ODM, depending on demand from the community. Um, the goal with the meta models in particular was to model the abstract syntax of the languages we were attempting to represent so that somebody could take um, a model that was specifically based on UML, for example, and transform that to something um, represented in OWL. Um, that was the goal rather than uh, broader interoperability from a number of different perspectives um, between tools and other things. And so the DIG interface is more of an API, um, at least as I understand it. And so we felt that you know, we, would, we would model the languages first, and then if there was enough interest from the community in following up with things like a DIG interface, um, we might also seriously consider that as a follow-on effort. Um, and having said that, there was a lot of interest in DIG and in a, in a DIG, sort of updated DIG to support OWL 1.1 or 2.0 or whatever it is going to be called um, at the OWL-ed workshop. And so we do have some folks who are more familiar with that than I am on the team and who are trying to follow it fairly closely so that we can understand what the impact on our document might be. Does that answer the question? Yeah, well, well thanks, because I, I was doing a mapping between uh, OWL and something called ORM, object modeling, and then I discovered actually there is a lot of uh, notions. So instead of actually mapping the language, it's better to map to the logic behind the language because the language can change and, but the logic also changed, but uh, very slowly. So in, in, in this case, I would map it to, to Shoik, which is the logic behind OWL. And uh, 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 the logic is uh, changed very slowly. It's not like the language. Right. And no, I agree with you there. Also, the semantics. You are closer to the, uh, when you map, you are closer really to the semantics. <coughs> That's what with the... So, I, yeah, no, I agree with you, and I think we're looking at it seriously for um, the next version of the specification. Okay. There was another question? I think we're all right, Elisa. If, you, if you'd like okay, to I just, move on. I thought I had heard a signal. So, okay, very good. So... Um, moving on to common logic, again, the idea here was to represent the abstract syntax of the language, and this um, work was done fair, fairly early on in the common logic development effort, and so um, what was really cool about developing the common logic meta model was that um, I sat down with Dave Frankel and Pat Hayes and Deb McGinnis and a few other people with a whiteboard um, at Stanford, and we were walking through what we thought we needed to do to represent it. And as we pointed out issues <clears throat> in the, that we discovered in the metamodeling process, that actually influenced the structure and content of the common logical language which we thought was really very cool. So our metamodeling effort actually had an impact on the language development, which um, we think is the way it's supposed to be, but usually doesn't turn out that way. So that was really quite fun. Um, 
So Pat Hayes and Chris Menzel have spent a lot of time reviewing um, the common logic meta model. Uh, Chris Welty also spent some time with it. Um, and other folks in the common logic community have also reviewed it fairly extensively. Um, they were sufficiently pleased with it that it is now um, a part of the common logic ISO specification, uh, which is and final. Um, it's gone beyond final committee draft, and it's now uh, closing in on becoming a formal specification in the ISO community. So um, the diagrams that are normative in the ODM are actually identical to those in the ISO common logic specification. So if we go to slide 20, um, the sort of overall diagram that ties everything together is the phrases diagram. And here is where you represent things like names or variables in the language. Um, <clears throat> the notion of an exclusion set which is a little bit complicated from a logic perspective, but allows you to say certain variables are in the universe of discourse, but for the purposes of our work, we want to exclude them from our domain of interest. Um, things like imports, um, sentences, any kind of text um, is all represented at the top level in this phrase's diagram. Uh, the next slide, which is slide 21, uh, includes two diagrams from the model, and so I apologize for not combining them, but this is the way they are in the specification. They are actually separate diagrams. So one is for terms on the top, which shows um, names being terms and then functional terms in the, in the language represented and how we uh, support the notion of arguments for those terms and sequence markers at the end. Um, and then atoms, which also include uh, not only atomic sentences, which are um, relations or um, equations, because a lot of folks wanted to actually be able to explicitly say x equals y, um, which the notation didn't support without this. So equations and atomic sentences um, are together as atoms in the language. On slide 22, um, you can see all the different kinds of sentences you can represent in common logic, uh, including the notion of an irregular sentence. <clears throat> and I mention that here because um, one of the goals I'll talk about in a few minutes for um, was to be able to support um, mappings and grounding of the logic for some of the other OMG specifications, including semantics for business vocabularies and rules. And the SBER specification calls for certain kinds of modal logic, which are um, kind of sentential um, modalities, which the irregular sentence is our sort of placeholder to support. And um, we're looking forward to working with Pat and Terry Halpin, who is the SBVR logician, to understand what that mapping needs to look like. Um, so that's why this is here. Uh, and otherwise, the rest of this should look um, like what you would expect, Boolean sentences, um, quantified sentences, and so forth. And then on slide 23, we break the Boolean sentences down a little bit further. Um, to show 
um, how they relate back to the higher level in the model, so conjunctions, disjunctions, negations, implications, and biconditionals are supported there. Um, and finally, um, the only controversial diagram that I know of right now in the common logic um, specification is this last one on slide 24, the quantified sentences diagram. And there's been some discussion recently about binding sequences and how they need to be modeled. And so the last conversation I had with Pat Hayes was that it was okay the way it is here um, and we were not necessarily going to change the diagram, although we may add the notion of bindings being ordered. <coughs> so, excuse me. So in a nutshell, that is the common logic a meta model, and there's a lot more in the ODM document that describes these things in detail, so please um, take a look at that and then feel free to ask us questions. Um, and I'm going to pause again to see if there's any questions here. <coughs> so, again, if you have a question, please uh, dial 11 on your handset. Okay. Okay. Um, so finally, although I didn't throw any of the diagrams in my presentation, on slide 25 there is also a meta model for topic maps. Topic maps is also an ISO standard, and um, again we developed the meta model for topic maps fairly closely with that community. So Bob Colomb from the University of Queensland did a lot of that work, and worked fairly closely with Lars Garshold and Steve Pepper who are primary authors of topic maps uh, to develop that meta model. Um, so all four, RDF, OWL, Common Logic, and topic maps, all four of those meta models are normative in the ODM specification. Um, and the MOF um, XMI representation for those models is also posted on the OMG website. Um, I believe with the June um, draft of the ODM specification, so you may have to hunt around for that if you are interested in it. But feel free to email me, and I'd be happy to point you to it directly. And then finally, the non-normative on slide 26 DL meta model, which um, is really something we developed as an educational tool. And I've been delighted to learn that people like Alan Rector at the University of Manchester actually use it in teaching. So um, while I thought it was, you know, kind of an afterthought and something we threw in there to help people out in the OMG community to understand um, what description logics was all about, I was actually delighted to learn that people are really using it in their teaching experience. So um, moving on from there, I'd like to give you a feel for the UML profile for RDF and OWL. And so moving to slide 27, the profile is intended to help you um, as a graphical notation for developing ontologies using UML. And so that is what we have here. Um, this profile was developed in conjunction with some folks at NIST and then IBM has actually been looking at it fairly closely recently as well. So um, it's had a little bit less scrutiny 
than the meta models have. Um, and we are still open to comment and uh, actually on the whole document. So um, up until the end of March, I think, there's a comments window open um, with respect to the finalization of the specification. So any feedback that you all have would be most appreciated, especially on the profile, as I said, which has had less review than the meta models. So just to give you a feeling for key features of the profile, turning to slide 28, um, <clears throat> a couple of interesting points. We've modeled RDFS resource as a UML instance. Um, we also model uh, reification through this reify stereotype, which is a dependency, um, which seemed intuitive to us. And you can see some of the evidence of that and diagrams to support it in the specification. Um, we wanted to give people a lot of options with regard to how you model properties. And so there are three different possible notations for an RDF property. Um, and we did this because some folks like to be more terse. Other folks need to add um, perhaps more information about a specific property, and we didn't want to preclude that from happening or to dictate to any tool vendor what it was they should support. So as you'll see on slide 28 at the bottom half of the screen, um, you can model a property um, as sort of a, a, a attribute in UML um, as in the, the first, the little self-contained has color, colon color representation. You could model it as an association, um, which is the first thing to the right at the top of those three diagrams. Or you can model it as an association class, which is the bottom diagram, um, which would then allow you to add attributes or properties onto the RDF property itself as needed. So um, all three of those possibilities are available in our profile for RDF. A couple of other interesting features. Slide 29 shows some of the variation in how you might represent property subsetting. Again, uh, parallel representations here in terms of the simpler attribute notation or using associations or um, a much richer association class style representation, depending on what your application needs are. Um, the notation that you're seeing with the sort of curly braces and subset follows on the association line and as a part of the attribute is derived from work that was done in the SysML meta model and profile effort uh, that recently successfully concluded at OMG as well. And the SysML specification is also available um, from the UML um, specification page on the OMG site. Uh, slide 30, for things like value and number constraints, we have some different options there as well. Again, if you have um, cardinality representations, um, there are various ways of describing that and um, things like all values from as well. And uh, again, we tried to make this as intuitive as possible for a UML perspective not necessarily from uh, people that are familiar with modeling these things in tools like Protege or Swoop um, perspective. And so that's kind of what you see in the notation here. 
um, slide 31 shows um, all values from... Uh, this is Steve Ray. I just had a quick question. You were talking about the uh, normative languages, well, the, the languages that are normatively modeled as part of ODM. And I was just kind of curious for the other side of the coin. Are you aware of how many languages are being modeled with ODM in a non-normative, you know, other, otherwise outside of the ODM spec? I mean, I've heard of, like, Express, but, like, what about ER models, things like that? So... Um, hi, Steve. So when we um, put the ODM together, we Express was something that we actually threw around, and Ed Barkmeyer and Conrad were interested in it, as well as some people from the broader Express community. Dave Price has been sitting in on some of our meetings at the OMG um, meeting, and he was there at the most recent meeting that Evan and I co-chaired in um, Anaheim. I think it was Adelheim. Anyway, so he, so there are folks that are interested in Express. There are folks that are interested in mappings to other things, um, and especially ER. And when we started putting the ODM together, since there was no normative ER meta model in any of the OMG specs, it had been part of CWM, but it was an appendix, and people decided that wasn't normative. Um, we learned that there is an upcoming. Um, specification called Information Management Meta Model, or IMM, that will include, um, and I think Ed and David Price are working on this, a meta model for Express, and it will mm -hmm. also include a new normative meta model for ER, which a number of the different vendors are participating in. We didn't want to step on their toes, and so we felt they should create those meta models um, in IMM. And then we'll create mappings from ODM languages to those meta models um, as a part of the IMM work. And in fact, um, Sandpiper and IBM are both participants in the IMM um, specification um, submitters group in order to support um, those mappings. Okay, so IMM and ODM are not competition with each other, or how does that no, work? No, uh -uh. in fact, we wanted to avoid that because we felt that other people knew Express and knew ER much better than we did. We want to leverage that information. We want to absolutely have mappings to ER in particular. I have customers who want that. But okay. um, we felt a better home for it was IMM. And, in fact, Pete Rivett and... Um, somebody from Embarcadero and a couple of other companies are working on that meta model. Okay, and then thanks. We'll, and then we'll worry about the mappings when when they have the meta model finalized. Fair enough. Other questions at this point? Okay, so on <clears throat> slide 31, you can see. Um, things start to get a little bit richer as we're trying to uh, help people model things like um, all values from a particular class, some values from a particular class. Um, and so here's an example of how you might do that. Um, intersection, union, complement are shown on slide 32. Those are fairly intuitive from a logic perspective. One thing I should point out is that UML 1.x does not support 
this notation very well, and so we were working with a couple of uh, different tools, vendors for UML2 tools, including IBM and Nomagic, on making sure we can represent this well using uh, their UML tools for UML2. Um, on the slide 33, we show some different options for disjointness, and there's an, uh, some interesting discussion happened recently in our local team about this, where um, things like notes are not well supported in UML1X tools, and we're not sure how well that's supported actually in UML2, but on the left-hand side, you have what really is a disjoint union where you have three subclasses of celestial body that are pairwise disjoint uh, with a common parent. And on the right-hand side, we show the same thing, but where there's no common parent um, and having some notation for being able to represent that cleanly. Um, and so again, for UML1X tools, we're requiring that you simply use pairwise disjointness in that case rather than the notation that uses a note, um, simply because the tools don't support it. Um, moving on to slide 34, some different options for representing inverse properties. And um, that's really the last slide that I had wanted to show uh, aspects of the profile, um, especially since Steve is on the phone. Um, I really want to um, thank Conrad Bach for a lot of his effort in helping develop this profile. He and Evan Wallace spent hours and hours and hours on the phone with me as we worked through some of these issues, and I have been extremely supportive in that effort. And so um, I really want to give them a lot of the credit for the hard work that was done on that. Um, and on slide 35, just in summary of the status, so you've kind of seen some of the different components that are part of the specification. Um, it was adopted as an OMG standard in October. The link to the final uh, adopted specification is on the bottom of slide 35. And the finalization task force is just really getting underway. Um, there's a window for public comments between now and the end of March. And please feel free to send us feedback um, on that FTF Exploder from the OMG website. We would appreciate any comments that folks have. Um, so in sum, that's kind of the ODM standard. The goal was to be able to bridge the knowledge representation in MDA worlds. And I have kind of a conceptual diagram of what that might look like on slide 36 where you have some native UML modeling tool. Using the profile, you develop a UML model that is an ontology. You can export that using the transformation capabilities that the specification includes to OWL. Um, then you can import the OWL in native semantic web tools for further development. You can bring that back in the other way for use um, in other uh, or with other UML um, models, and actually we have one activity with um, a partner company, uh, Adaptive, where we're looking at how to do that for the insurance industry. 
um, and specifically um, modeling some standards for property and casualty. Uh, some discussions came out in uh, at the last OMG meeting where um, I sat in along with um, my adaptive colleague Pete Rivett um, to a discussion with a number of very large insurance companies and representatives of their um, sort of industry standard working groups for how to represent property and casualty insurance issues, how to map that to Accord, how to map that to XBRL, how to use all of these things together and to still represent your information within your company uh, as is appropriate for you. And um, that discussion has kicked off some work that's going to be going on over the next three to four months in um, actually reverse engineering some of those insurance standards, creating ontologies for them, linking them within a MOF repository, and then being able to leverage them to support interoperability. And I'm very excited about that work. It should be um, a good test of how well we've been able to bring um, the two communities together. So um, on slide 37, I show a little bit about our relationship to some of the other OMG standards. Um, so there is a standard for sort of a structured English for representing uh, business vocabularies and rules called SBVR. Um, the logical components of that language are being grounded in common logic and Ed Barkmeyer at NIST is helping me uh, navigate those waters. Um, and Terry Halpin, who is the SBVR uh, logician, as I mentioned, and Pat Hayes on our side are helping to actually make sure that it's right. So that work is uh, kind of happening on a back burner, but slowly but surely moving forward. Um, we also anticipate mapping to the business uh, production rules specification uh, using work that's coming out of the W3C's Rule Interchange Format Working Group, or the RIF. Um, we have uh, support from ILOG and Fair Isaac in that effort uh, in particular, and they're very keen on being able to create that mapping so that they can use um, ODM languages for representing vocabularies for their customers and gaining a lot of scalability in terms of being able to separate the vocabulary from the rules and have a, a systematic way of mapping the two to one another. Um, so all of that is um, moving forward slowly but surely. Other extensions under consideration include a lossy mapping from Common Logic back to RDFS and OWL. Um, that's not currently in the specification. Right now in the spec, it's a one-way mapping from RDF and OWL to Common Logic. Um, support for semantic web services is also on the table. That may be a little bit slower to emerge in part because the jury is still out on what rule language is going to win. There's a lot of discussion in the rule interchange working group for how that should look, um, and there's a lot of discussion in the semantics for uh, services working groups to decide what services language is going to win on the semantic side. Um, and there is, nothing is firm yet, and so the, the bottom line is that we're watching both the semantic web services and rule interchange 
um, groups to see what emerges before we jump on the bandwagon and start trying to do something uh, too early. Um, we also are looking for requirements from the uh, SOA group in the OMG, and they are starting to have some need for this, so um, that's very exciting as well. Uh, slide 38 talks about some of the relationship we have with the ISO standards. So, yeah, as I mentioned, yeah? Yeah, Peter Yim here. Uh, back to slide 37 uh, uh, with your relationship with other uh, groups. It, the it, government GSA people like George Tom, Thomas uh, in, uh, and all, uh, and some of the folks have. Uh, it's, it's started recently this model-driven.org uh, community. Are you part of it or uh, collaborating with them? Can you repeat that for a second, Peter? My um, nanny just came in to help with Tommy, and so I missed a little bit of what you just said. Okay. The, I, I understand that there is a GSA effort uh, on model-driven architecture. I'm just wondering if your work here uh, are related or are you in collaboration with some of those folks? And I okay, also so Corey Kassanev, who has been spearheading some of the modeldriven.org and other things like that, right. um, is participating in the ontology SIG at OMG, and there is some work that he would like us to pursue in terms of kind of doing a reverse mapping uh, from MOF to RDF. And that effort um, is emerging, I think is the right way to put it. And I believe the GSA is sponsoring his work. Right. Um, and I think his idea was – pardon me? Yeah, I, I, that's the question. I mean, do you see that as a competitive effort or a collaborative effort? It depends on what day you ask me. <laughs> Um, there's no short answer to that, and, and we're trying to make it collaborative, and we're trying to help shape the work so that um, it doesn't compete with ODM and, in fact, leverages it as much as possible, and I think that is the goal in the end. But um, some of the folks that have been working on the GSA side have um, – Let's just say they've they've gone down a path in parallel with us that is not necessarily completely aligned to date. And at the last OMG meeting, we started doing some work to bring it back together. Fantastic. I, I understand we do have GSA folks online now, and let's all hope that we, we can uh, merge these efforts so that uh, it becomes a, a synergistic uh, joint effort. Yeah, no, I agree totally, and in fact, um, some of the guys that, are, that have been leading that work, Rick Murphy and uh, George Thomas and some other folks, certainly know about what we're doing and want to leverage it. Um, I just think that they had a need to do things earlier than we necessarily had tooling to support, and also they're looking at, at some different capabilities that they want to be able to have to use, say, an RDF triple store to store MOF models as opposed to an, a MOF store to store those same models. And so there's some interesting twists on their requirements that have led them to do certain things, and now we're hoping to bring those back together. Fantastic. Sorry for the interruption. 
Yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, and you, so, and I actually am close to wrapping up. I wanted to just give a flavor for um, some of the ways we're seeing, um, you know, what the next steps are, and then some of the ways we're seeing this used in applications really quickly, and then open it up for questions. So on slide 38, just a little bit more about the ISO relationships. So the common logic metamodel that's in the ODM is identical to the one in the ISO um, common logic specification. There's uh, There are a couple of differences, minor differences, between what's in the ODM and what's in the ISO topic maps specification. But again, there's been a, a lot of synergy between the working groups there as well. Um, all of our ODM metamodels are referenced in, and used in the ISO um, 19763 specification, which is from a model registry and metamodel framework. Um, most of that work is being done in uh, Japan and China and Korea. I think some Canadian folks are also participating. Um, but that effort is very much aligned with the ODM. And then the work, as Steve Ray mentioned, to develop a metal model for ISO Express and also for ER, uh, which will be part of the uh, emerging uh, IMM specification, which is kind of next generation CWM. That work um, we also want to create a mapping for. Um, and then going towards some of the other metadata standards, slide 39. Um, we, Sandpiper, my company, participates in both um, W3C and in the ISO community, and we're, we're in the process of joining the um, L8 working group, which is the U.S. representative to ISO um, metadata uh, standardization working group uh, to help support that effort. Um, and so next steps for us, slide 40. Um, the W3C uh, hasn't slowed down. They're moving things forward on a lot of different fronts, RDF query, rules, medical services. Um, we have been following those as best we can. Um, our ontology SIG roadmap includes the MOF revisions to support multiple classification, this reverse ODM, which is the representation from MOF and RDF to support the GSA effort. Um, with a longer-term vision to support semantic web services, mappings to ER and ISO Express from IMM, uh, mappings to support the rule interchange format work. And then also we believe that the FBVR specification will ultimately be grounded in the CL metamodel from a logic perspective so that people can use um, a combination, if they need to, of the SBVR style structured English vocabularies with AL vocabularies in the same kinds of applications. And we also have a plan to map to the uh, production role format um, when it's ready for us to do so. Um, and then we have all sorts of things on our wish list, like mappings from BPL to ODM and things like that uh, downstream. So that is kind of where things stand. Um, I'm delighted to let you know that the ODM is a final adopted specification of the OMG. It's been a long time coming, but um, it was adopted formally uh, in the middle of October, and so we're very excited about that. Um, and with that, I wanted to share a couple of um, application views with you and then open it up for general questions. So. 
um, when we developed that usage scenarios and goals document um, on slide 41, we had an application vision for what we were doing. We really wanted to help people achieve true um, executable models in the OMG community, and we felt that some of the things that would support were um, model validation, being able to separate your vocabulary from the software and the rules, uh, to increase abstraction levels, um, increase scalability support, um, support semantics for web services. All of those things were part of the vision as we started to build um, what is now the ODM. And so um, all of those things are still part of the vision, I'm happy to report, and um, we hope that uh, a number of people will get involved in helping us get there. Um, just to give you a, some early results, if you slip to slide 42, um, one of the things that we've done is a project with Hewlett Packard, um, which I believe is one of the first truly mainstream software engineering implementations that used ODM. Um, there's a project within HP called that supports management application integration, or MAI, um, which includes things like services management. And um, the environment that they're using at HP to support that is a part of HP OpenView, which was developed initially to support interaction of hardware and management of hardware in a network environment. And so the model that they had inside of OpenView when they first put a services management component in it was to do what they did with hardware, and that was to go out and pull all of their services and find out what their status was at any point in time so they could report it back. And as you might imagine, the overhead associated with that was tremendous. Performance was really poor. Um, it was hard to provide very much flexibility in the views that they provided to their customers of what was going on with their various services. And so they felt that in order to make it really useful, they had to really take uh, a model-based approach, both to get the performance they were interested in and to provide more flexibility. And they thought about three different approaches um, from a model-based perspective that they might take. One was straight UML. Um, to describe the services environment in a UML model and then um, share that model inside of OpenView in order to um, share status of services and various things. Um, they also looked at using a SIM model for that purpose. And then finally, the third option that they reviewed was to use RDF to do so. And in the end, they decided they really wanted to do something that was kind of a hybrid solution, which was to use the ODM as a development basis for it, and then actually deploy it using RDF. And what happened when we actually created the models and ontologies to support it, and even the sort of early pilots that we deployed, was that they were able to gain um, tremendous performance improvements by sharing model updates as opposed to the polling approach that they took previously. So they got what they expected there. They also got flexibility in what they could display to their customers um, <coughs> in terms of what was going on with their business services versus the IT services that were composed to make up those services. 
Um, so they got that level of flexibility that they wanted, but the third thing that happened, which was unexpected, was a dramatic improvement in implementation time and maintenance cost. So it was a, it was a very cool pilot project to be involved in, and I'm happy to tell you that the ontologies we developed and the solution uh, is now deployed as a part of HP OpenView. So I think that's one of the very first real production pieces of software that I'm aware of that is um, piece of software and RDF-based. So slide 43. Uh, another activity that we've been involved in, um, whose funding has kind of gone away for the moment, but hopefully will come back, was a semantic service-oriented architecture system we were deploying um, for the Department of Defense. And our role in it was to assist in the development of um, semantic registries uh, for processes, for uh, services, and uh, metadata in general for information resources as a part of the environment. The application um, that we targeted for the infrastructure was for um, search and rescue, for military search and rescue framework. And so on slide 43, you can see kind of some of the players that participated, a conceptual view of the environment where um, in order to know what services were available to you, you could go through a dashboard to the registry, call up the different services, or have them be selected um, in a fairly automated way um, in order to execute any steps in the process that um, you happen to need. And so slide 44 shows a little bit of that dashboard where um, we were able to provide through this agent logic front end um, information on things like weather, on um, the situation on the ground, on um, other issues and, and threats in the area, um, combining satellite imagery with the weather information and other things. Slide 45 shows you the sort of Google Earth mashup that we um, generated for this sort of early demonstration. And um, it was very well accepted. We've, we've gotten a lot of interest from various folks in the community. Um, the people that we supported in doing the development are pounding the pavement with their various to see who might be interested in um, piloting the the actual solution that we built out. But um, early reports are very good that, that this is fairly exciting and that people are able to um, bring a lot of their services together in ways that they couldn't before by adding the semantic component. Um, and so there's more. If you look on the bottom of slide 43, there's a link to a presentation um, given at uh, uh, I think it was a, a semantic interoperability community practice um, meeting at MITRE um, that uh, you can link to the presentation and get a better view of the whole SSOA framework that we pulled together. Um, and finally, a little bit on futures and some of the work that we're doing um, in conjunction with Stanford. Um, there is a project called um, Halo, or the cognitive assistant that learns and organizes as a subset of um, 
a PAL program funded by DARPA, um, which is a pro project to pull together various kinds of things to assist people in cognitive load with just personal office assistant kind of tasks. And the place that um, we've been doing a little bit of work and that Deb McGinnis and Stanford um, has been pursuing in their research has to do with how you explain the answers you get back from your personal assistant um, using the inference web infrastructure. And there are a number of papers on this available on the Stanford uh, inference website, which are, um, there's a link on the bottom of slide 46 for that, um, in case you're interested in more. But if you go I would to slide. Like to, uh, uh, I would also like to add that uh, actually we had uh, Adam Chaya from uh, SRI uh, present the Kalo project. Oh, good. Uh, at one of our uh, sessions as an invited speaker before. So it's all a presentation is also on the Ontolog archives as well. And if I understand correctly, that's probably the only public presentation uh, from that perspective available online. I would believe you're right. I know there are papers on the explanation component, but I don't know about overall program presentations. So um, to provide people with the background for looking at inference web, that might be a very good place to start. Um, in any case, the, the last couple of slides have kind of an overview of what um, the inference web component or explanation component, which is all ontology and reasoning-based, um, adds to that project. Um, Slide 47 gives you uh, a little bit of the um, background for why Inference Web was selected, and mostly it's to explain what the system is doing and allow users to understand uh, why it's doing it and whether or not it needs to um, be adjusted in order to perform differently or to emphasize some path or another that the system is going down. Um, slide 48 provides some of the insight into the architecture of that system and the things in the gray boxes, especially the lower left, um, are really pieces that are provided by um, Inference Web itself. The slide 49 gives you kind of an architecture overview of Inference Web which includes and builds on this proof markup language, which is actually an OWL ontology. And the ontology itself is available on the Inference Web website um, for you to look at. Um, they're still working on PML 2.0, but um, I know you can download both PML 2 and PML 1, the, the precursor to that, from the Inference Web website to take a look at the OWL ontology. It reflects a lot of information about that system state, provenance, where information comes from, how you represent rules. Um, there are other papers on the inference website about ongoing work to use it for explaining answers that are coming back from knowledge representation systems for the intelligence community, things like um, why certain 
decisions were made about who should look at a document or not look at it based on its content and that kind of thing. There, There is a project, a NIMD project, that was done in conjunction with IBM using the IBM uh, UEMA framework for text mining and um, co-reference resolution with InferenceWeb providing explanations on the results. Um, that's very interesting. So I encourage you to go to the Inference website and look at some of those papers to see where the research on this um, front is going. Um, and that was really what I had to share. So the last couple of slides at the back have what I describe as acronym soup. Um, so hopefully there are some links there that will be helpful references to folks. Um, and I thought I would open it up to questions. Well, th thank you very much, uh, Elisa. That's been a, a, an excellent talk, extremely interesting. Could you questions? speak up, please, Matthew? Sorry. Thank you very much, Elisa. That was an excellent talk and extremely interesting and worth saying twice for those that didn't hear it first time. Um, are there any questions, please? Yes, we do have Mustafa's hands up. So, Mustafa, you're next. So, actually, uh, I didn't see uh, the, the uh, link with the work done in Bolzano. It's the University of Bolzano. Uh, it's, uh, they have a, a great center of, of, uh, for logic, description logic mainly, is that they map UNL to description logic or to, to DLR description logic. And I found, because I did myself mapping some ORM, which is actually something similar to ER or UNL, to, to, to description logic, and I found there is something cannot be mapped into OWL. For example, uh, 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 which actually makes me now think about the accuracy of the mapping that you presented. Uh, uh, for example, the multiplicity many-to-many uh, uh, -many in UML. How this can be represented in OWL? It's, it, it's not possible as, as far as I know. So there are a number of things like replication. It cannot be represented in, 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 in OWL. So are we mapping, for example, UML into description logic? Or are we mapping description logic into uh, UNL and so use UNL as graphical notation of description logic? Or OWL, here I mean. Uh, so this is my question. And uh, uh, so if you have heard about this mapping in, that's done in Bolzano about uh, between UNL and uh, 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 description logic, actually it's a great mapping. And it's logically proved to be, uh, they prove it in the paper to be correct. So, um, I think I heard a number of questions in there, but um, short answer is yes, I know of Enrico's work and his team. And um, the mapping chapter, the actual mapping from UML to OWL, there is one chapter devoted to that in the ODM specification. Um, that work was done by IBM. And I don't know if they were informed by the work that was done in Bolsano, but um, a number of us in the ODM working group think that that chapter in particular uh, needs work and is one of the things that we're going to be fleshing out during our finalization phase of the project. So um, I've actually downloaded some of the papers on that mapping specifically, and I know Evan Wallace has started looking at it very carefully because we think that our mapping 
could be informed by it, and that would be very useful. So the short answer is that, yes, we know about it, and, yes, we're hoping to improve the mapping chapter that's in the ODM currently um, by being well advised of that work. And I also know Enrico fairly well, and um, he's offered his help. So um, hopefully in the long term, you know, we'll be able to really improve the mapping so that it reflects that. That is one piece that lagged behind in part because of the difficulty we had with the QVT. So, and we do realize that mapping UML to OWL or mapping UML to knowledge representation paradigms in general is sort of a round peg, square hole issue. But the original goal was to help people be able to use UML graphical notation to develop ontologies and also under the covers to be able to map semantics from a syntactic model to a semantic model and to be able to, to leverage that for interoperability purposes. So, I, I, you know, I don't think we were trying to be um, perfect in our mapping of all of UML, and in fact we haven't attempted to map all of UML to OWL. Um, there are a lot of features, behavioral features in particular of UML that we can't map. Um, however, the goal was to be able to get a clean representation so that UML tools could be used to, be, to develop ontologies, and secondly, so that for those things that were mappable, um, that we got that part right. And so um, it was more a matter of being able to leverage the infrastructure that was available um, in the MDA framework for metadata management, for system development, software development, and be able to provide um, additional capability leveraging the semantics that the knowledge representation side brought to the table, but there was no intent to do a comprehensive mapping that was two-way. that help? Yeah, thanks. Good. Other questions? Okay. Again, uh, if you have a question, uh, please press 1-1 one, one on your keypad, and when you are acknowledged, then uh, you can press star 3 to unmute your phone and ask the question. Okay. Uh, while we're waiting for that, uh, Peter Yim here, I have uh, a, a comment. Uh, thank you very much for uh, pointing us to the work uh, that Deborah is doing on Inference Web. Uh, we definitely would like to pursue uh, that and maybe with your help uh, invite Deborah over to uh, tell us more about it. I know she's interested and I know she'd be thrilled to um, lead a conversation and, and give a presentation on it. She's um, She was hoping to be on this call today and had a conflict, but um, her work is really fairly unique and I think can really help understand, you know, usability issues and providing those explanations for me is a wonderful debugging assistant when you're trying to understand what researchers are telling you or what whether or not your ontology works for the, for the application you're developing. So um, I think it would be very helpful to have her give that talk, and I know she'd be delighted. Yeah, if I, I mean, just by coincidence, I mean, sometime last May, I mean, we had 
on on two consecutive consecutive weeks. We had Adam Chai presenting on Kalo on one week, and then Dave Ferrucci from IBM presenting uh, UEMA to us. That was like May fourth and May eleventh. Yeah, fabulous. And if I heard you correctly, uh, the the uh, UEMA is featured in uh, the inference web. That yes. would be just a wonderful follow up to both those uh, presentations. Yeah, and I think as I said, there were papers on the inference web website on both projects. Um, so if you search on the papers on inference web that have to do with um, explanations to support intelligence work uh, or the NIMD project or um, search on Chris Walty or Dave Ferrucci, um, you'll find some of those papers on the inference website. And similarly, the Kalo work, there are some interesting papers there as well. Fantastic. Well, back to something very early. I mean, at the beginning, you did mention that there's the sort of introductory paper uh, that would explain uh, ODM at the very beginning before you even started on slide number two. Uh, could you maybe send me the link uh, to that so that I can post it as sort of additional reference material uh, on, on this session page? So sure. There was a there was a about. paper just of that chapter of ODM um, that it was given at the Wise Conference in Australia in 2004. But also, Chapter Seven of the ODM document itself provides some of that. And so the link to the document is in my presentation, and it's Chapter Seven. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll take a look at that. Since I've already posted your uh, sort of the, the, the final spec, the uh, October 11th, uh, 2006. Yes. So it's chapter seven of that document. That, paper, that document on the link, I will also point uh, add to it that chapter seven would be a good introductory piece to for people to read. Thank right. you. Since I don't see any more hands, maybe we'll pass this back to Matthew, uh, who has about 10, 15 minutes to do a closing and also to uh, tell us a little bit more about the the entire mini-series. Oh, Matthew? Well, thanks for that, uh, Peter. Um, I certainly don't uh, plan to spend 10 to 15 minutes talking. I can uh, give everyone some relief on that. Um, uh, I'd just like, again, to say thank you to uh, Elisa for that excellent talk. Um, as you know, this is part of uh, the Ontology and Databases uh, mini-series um, where we're trying to do uh, look at different aspects of how ontology and databases interact with each other, either how data um, ontology supports the development of database design, for instance, um, or how uh, databases can actually be used to support ontology or here, um, how data models ontology get, get, uh, get brought together. 
um, and it's all extremely, extremely interesting. And you can see just how much exciting work there is, uh, there is going on in this area from from what Elise has been saying today. Um, so I think I'd really just like to uh, thank you all for your attendance um, and hand back to Peter for any domestic issues that need tidying up. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Matthew. And, of course, thank you, uh, Elisa, for this very comprehensive talk. Uh, and thanks to everyone for joining us. And thank you, as always, Peter, for organizing everything. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Right, goodbye then, everyone.